Because of the support of the executives, from those right above me all the way to the top of the organization, we get the kind of participation and support we need because they believe in it and they tell people they believe in it. Welcome to the Failover Plan Podcast. I'm Shane Matthew. I wanted to start out this episode by pausing to celebrate the Failover Plan Podcast hitting our 100th follower this week. We're so excited to see a great group of both BC and non-industry professionals joining up to get access to the latest news about the show. If you haven't done so yet, you can get access to the LinkedIn group by searching LinkedIn for the Failover Plan Podcast or subscribing directly to our newsletter, which can be found at failoverpodcast.com. There you can simply add your name to the subscriber list, which we use to keep you up to date on show news and what's coming up next. But if you'd just like to keep this relationship real casual for now, that's okay too. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or other podcast sites. And now, with all that out of the way, on to the show. Now maintaining continuity is vital for every business, but perhaps no other industry faces the same level of urgency as in healthcare. When a hospital experiences a disaster, the downtime affects more than just the business. It affects patients and the care they received. In 2011, I was leading emergency management for a hospital in North Texas when a huge ice storm swept through the city. We were buried in ice and had a unique problem. Not only were we having trouble getting routine supplies in, but getting garbage trucks to clear out our dumpsters presented another unique challenge. That's when our first clue about incorporating business continuity into our planning efforts really started to make sense. Now, the importance of healthcare business continuity planning can't be understated. Every hospital must have a business continuity plan. So imagine you're in charge of the effort. What would be the sense of urgency to build a comprehensive program if you worked at a major children's hospital located in one of America's largest cities, which happens to be smack dab in the middle of the Texas Gulf Coast which is known more for hurricanes than its beaches. This week, I'm interviewing James Mitchell, the Director of Organizational Resilience at the 724-bed Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. His responsibilities encompass emergency management, business continuity, and enterprise risk. The last few months, he's been heavily involved with the historic pandemic response at Texas Children's, which involved a 140-plus day activation of their incident command system and he graciously sat down with me so we could talk about how he approaches his program, the unique challenges healthcare presents to the business continuity world, and how he ensures his executive team is always aware and engaged. Again, thank you, James, for uh, joining us today. I'm excited to have you on as a guest. Uh, I'm a native Texan, so Texas Children's Hospital is uh, definitely a place that I've heard of and know about uh, in my growing up in, in this state. Uh, so it's interesting to talk to a BC uh, leader uh, in an organization that is uh, such a well-known and large one in uh, the country. So, you know, tell me a little about uh, your your background. Um, you know, how how did you end up here? I know your career didn't start at Texas Children's. So, how how did you get to uh, this type of role? So, my journey to get to where I am today at Texas Children's goes all the way back to 1999, uh, in the middle of the dot-com bubble. Uh, At that time, my (laughs) wife and I were living in rural Texas, west of Austin, which unfortunately meant there were very few jobs to be had. And so we were looking around to find what would be the next step for us, where should we go from there, and uh, the big city, 
beckoned and uh, we found that Houston was a place that had a lot of good jobs. So we found ourselves uh, in Houston in 1998 as the dot-com bubble is really starting to step up. Uh, a lot of people are being drawn into technology jobs who had never done them before. Uh, more than once in interviews, I heard references to looking for warm bodies and I most assuredly fit, <laughs> fit the description of a warm body. And so, you know, I, that's, that's, that's interesting because uh, that's unfortunately, I think that's the same interview question or comment that we, a lot of us in the industry tend to get when we're starting out. So that's interesting. You heard that too. Exactly. And so, you know, I spent a, some time working in a couple of uh, small startup internet companies, but eventually found my way into a position as a data center analyst for a large investment company here in Houston called Invesco. At the time, it was called AIM Investments. Uh, but what I discovered was that not only was I really genuinely the definition of a warm body, I was not a good IT person. Uh, I didn't have a talent for it. I didn't have the kind of curiosity that really drives people to be uh, quite good at doing technology work. And so ultimately, I found myself seeking out positions within technology that were very process-oriented, um, IT service management, uh, a little bit of crisis management, change management, that kind of work I found to be very appealing, where I could take my broad technical knowledge, which was not very deep, it was broad, but not deep, and apply it in a lot of ways to help gain efficiency, which, as you can imagine, um, Technology is one of those things where uh, crises occur quite often. And right. as crises occur and you start learning to figure out how we're recovering from these things and how does the organization best respond when it loses its technology, IT crisis management, and then IT disaster recovery and business continuity just seem to be natural outflows of where I had been inside of technology doing yeah. things that were very process-oriented. <laughs> right. So flash forward now, you've uh, now uh, serve at Texas Children's Hospital, which a business continuity role in a in a hospital, let alone a children's hospital, is is uh, starting to grow more. But uh, it's not been a, in my opinion, or at least my awareness, been a a critical role that organizations tend to, to, to be in. So how did that start for you? Was was that something you were filling the shoes of someone else who started before you or did you start the program? So it was back in 2013 that I was looking to leave Invesco and kind of expand my horizons a bit. Um, I ended up spending nearly three years at uh, BP, British Petroleum, doing similar work around IT disaster recovery and business continuity. But as you may remember, in that 2013 to 2015 time horizon, oil went from $100 a barrel to maybe around $30 a barrel, driving a lot of layoffs and a lot of people moving around looking for other positions. And so at that time, I'm searching job boards just to see what my options are. And I see a position at Texas Children's for an emergency management and business continuity hmm. assistant director. Well, I know business continuity, and I felt fairly confident that whatever they wanted from that perspective, having done it in investments and done it in energy, I could surely do it in healthcare. But a lot of business continuity people don't get the opportunity to get involved with emergency management. It really wasn't mm -hmm. something I was familiar with. Uh, when you think about the uh, Disaster Recovery Institute standards and a lot of other standards, they tend to talk about emergency management, but it's usually along the lines of, somebody sure ought to be doing that. <laughs> and <laughs> somebody's looking at this. But it's right. not necessarily in our scope as a continuity professional. 
Correct. And so yep. through the interview process, what I learned was is that Texas Children's had a long-standing, mature emergency management team. What they were looking to do was to add on an additional business continuity function. Somewhat forward-looking, they saw that um, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services and other regulatory bodies were really going to start wanting to see more in the business continuity space. But particularly in healthcare, it's not something that had been well-defined. And so as I come into Texas Children's back in September of 2015, what I learned was is in the hospital space, when you have a mature emergency management program that's been in place for a long time and is doing all of its regulatory requirements, there are a lot of business continuity elements to get wrapped up inside of that. Right. Right. So typically, as a new continuity person coming into an organization, you're going to ask questions such as, okay, well, do we have redundant power? Um, do we have plans in place, you know, to handle staffing shortages? Um, what are we going to do about food and water and various things like that? from a continuity perspective. Well, the emergency management people had already sorted that stuff out and had it sorted out for a very long time with very mature processes. Well, first of all, why does Houston seem to be a little bit more of a, a mature organization and let alone a, a hospital that doesn't have a specific business continuity mandate that had traditionally emergency management? Can you, can you explain a little bit about why, why Texas Children's may be kind of a, a leader or unique in this space? Well, a lot of the areas where you get mature is when you have a large number of risks that have uh, occurred multiple times. So Houston is located right on the Texas Gulf Coast. We have a hurricane season that lasts from June 1st all the way through the end of November. Oh. <laughs> For, for our region, it tends to start ramping up in the um, August-September time frame. But literally, our first tropical storm that was a threat to the Houston area actually occurred at the end of May. Oh, and goodness. so because these things have occurred multiple times, you have to have incredibly mature processes in place to address those things. Right, uh, one right. of the most historic events for the Texas Medical Center in general that – I will even go as far as to say that literally scarred some people because of <laughs> its impact was Tropical right. Storm Allison back in 2001. Yeah. Um, it had a devastating impact to the Texas Medical Center. Um, decades right. of research lost, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in damage, um, hospitals out of commission for weeks afterwards. Mm. And so wow. those, those who were prepared um, – had thoroughly embedded the idea that they needed to continue being prepared. And those that were not prepared learned a very hard and valuable lesson at that time. Tell us a little bit about the program so people can understand the context and complexity that uh, you're, you're, you're dealing with. You're dealing obviously with emergency management situations, but on the business continuity side, what's the kind of the scope or, or the uh, activities that you're charged with? So to look at the full scope of what the team is responsible for doing, we have a fairly integrated team where uh, everybody helps with emergency management and we have a lot of help that goes the other way over towards the business continuity side. So on the emergency management side, we're responsible for large-scale evacuation planning, uh, chemical decontamination. We have a volunteer team that does chemical decontamination. If there was a large spill and patients come in who are contaminated, we manage that process. Um, active shooter planning and active shooter drills. Um, I'll share with you via email some of the uh, links to exercises that we have done.
done that were vast in scope and complexity, um, all the way down to uh, just very simple things such as dealing with uh, large-scale water outages. All of that is typically under the heading of emergency management. And okay. we tend to say that emergency management activities are what are occurring in that first 72 to 96 hours. We have to respond directly to the emergency that's occurring before we can ever even start worrying about what to do on the continuity side. Right. So for us, continuity tends to be the things that are outside of our most core uh, patient care responsibilities but also things that are going beyond that three to four day time horizon. Let me give you a very good example of how we break that down. And it's a bit nebulous and different organizations will break it down differently. But when you think about the experience during Hurricane Harvey, which was a massive flooding event in the Houston area back in 2017, mm -hmm. we typically tell our staff to be prepared for a two to three day event. Yet for Harvey, we had staff locked in at the hospital, maintaining critical patient operations for five to six days. Oh, my goodness. Well, one of the things, though, that you learn is all of your ancillary business services, which you would typically say, you know what, two to three days, we can live without those things. When you're talking five and six and seven and eight days and longer, or when you start thinking about something like a cyber event that might go on for months, it was very much... Um, impressed upon the organization that we've got to be prepared to continue our full range of business operations beyond just critical patient care for 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, or potentially even longer. Wow. That's so, where business continuity comes into play. Yeah. So do you look at uh, your business continuity or your business impact analysis when you're assessing these critical functions do you look at it kind of with two lenses or like this is the option A, which is an isolated event, and this is the criticality of these functions in those time frames? And then option B is during a hurricane or a long term event, these uh, these processes do need to be recovered faster than we originally thought. How, how do you uh, kind of tier them? Um, that's exactly how we approach it. One of the primary things, obviously, that we look at is patient care. Everything comes down to patient care and what is the event doing to our ability to continue providing that patient care and what are the critical processes and services and people and technologies that we need to carry those things out. Uh, you know, many organizations will talk about tier one or tier two or their top level or bottom level, or they'll talk about recovery time objectives. Yeah. The bottom line is when you're talking about critical patient care, that just can't stop. It has to continue. That's not right. something that we can just do without for a period of one to two to three hours or much less days. And so all of that patient care and that lens of patient care has to come first. Once we get beyond looking at patient care, though, we do the typical things that most organizations do. And we're going to look at what is the financial impact? What is the reputational impact? What is the impact to research? We start looking at all of those things. But number one, first and foremost, is providing safe patient care, regardless of what's going on around us. At a certain point, you start to to work with teams on developing plans, you know, building an appropriate plan. Do you have a approach or philosophy around planning? Do you like, um, you know, do you like larger plans with the checklist? Like, how do you approach planning at that type of organization? So the philosophy that I brought from Invesco was very much driven home uh, while I was at BP and that we've implemented here at Texas Children's is that plans need to be simple and actionable. 
if a plan is incredibly lengthy and has more detail than is really necessary, then people actually won't reference it uh, when there's an emergency. Rather, mm. it is something that is used to show regulators when they show up. And while we do want to keep regulators happy, that's important. We are far more interested in creating actionable plans that are short, that are um, checklist oriented to ensure that people know the things they need to do to get those critical activities back up and running again. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've heard that and, and I try to implement that, too. But like, you know, when the rubber meets the road, how does that work? Do you, do you when you say checklist, for example, you know, how do, how do you frame up a checklist when there's so many varied types of departments and and, uh, you know, types of operations. What, what's your thought process behind that development? So we're going to look at things in big categories. So, for example, whenever you're looking at a department such as nursing, which for us, our nursing department is going to be vast, and there's lots of variations within those departments as to the kind of activities they do and the things that they consider critical. Um, number one, inside of a plan, we are not going to try to re-record all of the knowledge that we would expect appropriately credentialed nurses to have right, when right. they show up on the floor to work. Right. So there's right. an assumption that there's a certain level of knowledge that already exists within the individual who's doing the work. And if they didn't have the knowledge, the plan I give them isn't going to give them that knowledge. You right. can't credential them, right? right? And so we're going to look at a big bucket such as nursing and there's a vast amount of commonality in the activities that nurses in general are going to carry out. And so we will try to um, put together checklists that are applicable across, across the wide range of activities that they do, and then potentially have appendices for specific units that then have variations that they need to have in place other than the broad plan. Right, right, right. So that way you can hit kind of like, it's almost like you're making modules or templates and, and you start from a baseline and they can customize it to an extent, right? Exactly. But, you know, it's interesting you say something that they can customize. Um, one of the things that we have found to be very effective and understanding that every organization is different, but to get our program off the ground over the last few years, it was absolutely essential that we tasked someone with the responsibility and the knowledge of business mm. continuity to sit down with those people, take their expertise and put it into the plan for them, uh, almost using an internal consulting model. Uh, rather than um, just handing them the information and trying to get them to do it themselves. So what does that look like, James? Is it, uh, you know, is it an interview based like we traditionally sense and, and you, you kind of walk them through like we're talking here today about uh, things going on in their organ, their part of the organization? Yeah, that's exactly it. So we tried several different approaches. Um, we'd initially tried sending out a survey that could be filled out, and then the survey information would be taken, the plan would be populated, and then we would take the plan back to them to have them review it for its accuracy. That ended up being far more cumbersome than was reasonable. Because it's funny you say that, because I've, I've seen that model, I've used that model, and I'm probably getting the same results you probably gotten started to change your ways. So the, the challenge is that whenever an, an expert in nursing or an expert physician or an expert in any other field sits down with that survey, there are too many different ways for them to interpret what you've given them. No matter how, how well you write your guidance, they're going to interpret what it is they think you're looking for, and then they're going to fill it out. And you end up with a vast yeah. amount of inconsistency that you have to follow up on. Right. Right, right, right. That's that's a good point. Yeah, because everybody, if you leave it, <laughs> leave them to their own devices, will give you the amount of data they think they need to recover. And 
You can't always exactly. account for that yeah. variation. The thing is, you're always going to have some people who are overachievers, and they're going to give you vastly <laughs> more than you ever wanted, and they're going to burn up a ton of hours they didn't need to burn up. But right. then there are other people who are going to give you something back, and you're going to literally be looking for what did they put into this template because I'm not even seeing it, but they think it's done. Yeah. And so that kind of variation just ends up creating a lot of busy work for everybody that's not helpful. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times people stop right where you are talking. You know, they basically build a plan and then it goes into the repository or on a shelf. You know, how do you keep this stuff top of mind with your organization and not make it a cumbersome thing? Because I know, you know, nurses, uh, I've worked with them over my career. I know that they are slammed oftentimes with so many different priorities. So sitting down to write a plan or an exercise is a challenge. So how do you how do you approach that? Uh, with all groups like that, I, I think it's essential to make it as easy on them as possible, and that's why we approached it from the perspective of we're the ones who need to fill out this plan. Let me interview you, get the information that I need from you to populate the plan, so that when I bring the plan back to you and you look at it, it reflects your operations, yeah. and you're able to look at it and see this makes sense to me. This is something I understand. Because the reality is, and this goes throughout my entire career, I have maintained the belief that for the vast majority of people that you sit down to work with and build a business continuity plan, they may not know your language, they may not know the vocabulary or some of the concepts that you're wanting to communicate to them, but most good leaders have already thought through, what am I going to do if I lose my building? What am right. I going to do if I lose electricity? They may not have formulated it into a plan, but they've given thought to it. And so to respect that knowledge that is floating around inside their minds already and to extract that, put it on the page so that when they look at that plan, yeah, you created it, but they own it because they see themselves reflected in it. I think that's right. incredibly powerful. So do you do any sort of testing at the departmental level uh, to, to make sure that you know new people coming into the organization are also aware? What's, what's your approach to testing and exercising? So the view that we've taken on testing and exercising is if something is worthy of having a plan, that plan should be tested every single year. There are too many variations in departmental structures, departmental processes, new people coming in. If we really think it needs a business continuity plan, it needs to be tested every single year. It needs to be updated. And for every test that we do or for every real activation, an after action report must be completed. That after action report is reviewed by our emergency management committee and the corrective actions that are included inside that document are tracked by my team to ensure that we're actually completing the things we said we needed to complete and mm -hmm. that we've matured the plan year over year. So let's talk about leadership. You know, that's a challenge a lot of uh, business continuity professionals face in their organization is, you know, it may not be perceived as a value add as much as as uh, we'd like the people to perceive it or, um, you know, it's just, it's just seen as a necessary evil because of the fact that we, uh, the, the company may have some sort of um, a regulatory standard to meet, you know, how, how have you approached your leadership and kept them engaged uh, in well, your program? In one sense, I was quite fortunate in that I inherited a culture and a leadership structure that has benefited our program tremendously. So at the top of Texas Children's are four executive vice presidents that report to the CEO. 
My actual reporting structure is inside of the legal department and up to the chief operating or the chief financial officer, which as you can imagine, when I'm a part of the legal department and we're reporting up to the finance people, operational expertise isn't their strong suit. And so going back many, many years at Texas Children's, there was a dotted line to an operational executive vice president. So a dotted line to someone who reports directly to the CEO. And on a quarterly basis, my vice president and I sit down with his executive vice president. We say, here are our goals, here are our objectives, um, here's the progress we've made towards achieving these things. And we are able to form with that uh, very senior executive what it is our program needs to be doing and how we're measuring it and making certain we get the support we need. Excellent examples of what that support can do for you. So in 2017, we did a large-scale hurricane exercise, uh, pulled together literally 150 directors and vice presidents from throughout the system, put them in a room for three hours to do a robust hurricane exercise. We had such phenomenal participation in that exercise because the executive vice president who had a dotted line to our program told people, this is important. We need to do this. This is valuable. And because he expressed his support of the program, that filters down through the entire organization. And so I can talk to you about multiple large-scale active shooter exercises, um, large-scale radiation injury treatment network exercises, and many others that because of the support of the executives from those right above me all the way to the top of the organization, we get the kind of participation and support we need because they believe in it and they tell people they believe in it. Some people may say, uh, James, you're lucky. You got an executive that understands this, can, uh, you know, really supportive of you. You know, is that really the case or is there things that you've done to to maybe uh, bolster the case for why this is this is a successful program? I know you mentioned goals. You know, how, how have you really kept that momentum going even past things like hurricane season? So one of the things that you have to do as a professional is to honor that involvement that you get from executives. So at whatever point they agree to show up to an exercise, your exercise needs to be 100% first class. It needs to be something that when they look at it, they say, did we hire consultants to do this? <laughs> no, we did not hire consultants. We did all of this internally. Yeah. Uh, from the materials you put together to the quality of the facilitation of the exercise, everything needs to be so well done that when leaders come into that room and they have given over two to three hours of their time, yeah, they're not fighting your scenario or they're not um, nitpicking at all of the little things that you didn't think to sort out ahead of time. Right. They are in the moment, they're living it with you, and they then see the value of it because, quite frankly, we've done exercises that directors and executives have come out of and said, that was scary. When I think of this event happening in our organization, I am scared because we need to do more to be prepared. Right. And so that's how you get that executive involvement is creating a first-class program that they want to be involved in. Wow. That's a great point. I mean, yes, you have to be able to get their personal engagement um, for their buy-in to come along with it. Some, some of my listeners who will, will see your picture on the podcast or are, are friends with you on LinkedIn, you're a man of incredible style. 
I'll have to just say. <laughs> You're a very well-dressed person in general every time I've seen you uh, or your, your photographs. So uh, I'm curious to know, you know, going back to this, this made me think of this, going back to what you had said about making the experience for your leaders uh, seem very polished and, uh, you know, you think of the details Obviously, you do that in your personal life. So, but you know, when you apply that, what would be a tip you could give to some of our listeners about, um, you know, some simple things they could do to make the experience of an exercise or a, a, an event that you're leading? Some of the small details that you pay attention to that may not be a very challenge for others to also, you know, to 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 include or incorporate. Um, high quality physical materials and high quality PowerPoint presentations. Uh, it was probably in the last two years, somebody had posed a question on LinkedIn. What kind of advice would you give to people who are brand new to the emergency management and business continuity profession? People are coming out of programs or freshly credentialed. And the advice I gave them was, do not forget basic management tools and skills. If you are going to be doing business continuity and emergency management in a corporation of any size, your ability to use Microsoft Word, PowerPoint, Excel, all of these things are incredibly important to your ability to communicate and present your work effectively to senior leaders in your organization. Don't forget the basics. You know, you, you've uh, talked about um, engagement in your planning and, and talking to leaders during planning. Is that really the only time you, you spend with them? Like, you know, in terms of your crisis management, the way you deal with emergencies, are you, you know, actively involved at the organizational level in things like COVID, for example, or or uh, is it focused more on, you know, those those types of emergencies and, and business continuity disruptions um, that are more traditionally known? Now, so one of the things that we have done because of the expertise that we have developed internally within our team and the level of competence that we have demonstrated in real events and exercises, um, oftentimes the question is asked, is the emergency management and business continuity team involved? We want them in the room. We want right. them to be involved. We do have an advantage, though, uh, inside of healthcare in that we are required to use the incident command system that is supported by the Federal Emergency Management Agency. We have regulatory requirements that drive our use of that. And we have specific roles inside of that system that we uh, inside my team are supposed to fill. But the roles that we fill are directly within the executive command center. And so throughout all of our response to COVID-19, we have had um, roughly four different iterations of an incident command structure looking to address different um, aspects of this crisis as it has evolved. And as each of those different command centers is formed under different executive leadership with a different focus, um, always my team has had a seat at the table to be involved to advise, to support, literally whatever is asked of us, but always having that seat at the table. Yeah, that's, that's, it, that's an interesting example. So you're saying that uh, be because of the nature of some specific parts to this response, you've in effect set up multiple uh, components to your response system and you have different response organizations attacking different parts to the problem? How, how do they all coordinate? So 
it developed as the situation was evolving. So as we were first becoming aware of COVID-19 and the need to respond, uh, we used our incident command structure to set up a COVID-19 task force with um, 12 to 13 different groups looking at different aspects of the response. Um, as that developed and as COVID-19 began to ramp up in the United States, we then implemented the full incident command structure. So to those who are listening, who are familiar with it, you know, we had incident command, it's a planning section, the finance section, the operations section, logistics section, as well as area commands at our community hospitals, at our health plan operations, as well as our pediatrics and urgent care operations. And for many weeks, we operated with that exact structure ensuring that we could respond effectively to whatever it is that might be occurring in our community with this disease. But once we started um, seeing that at the time our response as an organization was sufficient and that we had done the things we needed to do, but that some permanent changes would be uh, needed for how we operate, we then closed down that response-oriented command center and opened up what we called a phased reopening and redesign command center. Again, using the exact same principles, the exact same or similar structure, but then focused on how do we reopen uh, our operations safely, and then how do we redesign our operations to fit the new normal? That stayed open for several weeks Weeks as we worked through all of the different um, complicated aspects of reopening with COVID-19 still being in the community. Once that wrapped up and that work was largely implemented, we were then faced with, in the Houston area, Texas in general, a significant upswing in the right. number of people with COVID-19 um, symptoms and so forth and needing to respond to that. So we reopened a COVID operations focused command center using all the same principles, all the same structures to then say, okay, we've got essentially small crises developing all over the organization that need to be addressed and we need to do so quickly and efficiently. Right. So through all of the different command structures that I just described to you, uh, the Texas Children's Organizational Resilience Team, which is emergency management and business continuity, had a seat at the table advising, helping, and supporting all throughout. And we are still filling that role today. So how did the business continuity, I mean, again, obviously at the beginning stages of this, this COVID-19 event and probably popping up over different moments in time over the last few months, but how did your business continuity planning uh, get used? I mean, obviously the emergency management stuff was, was top of mind for many things, but were your disruption plans... Um, utilized during this emergency? So this is one of the fascinating things about COVID-19 because it essentially developed a classic business continuity scenario. If you tell an organization that they cannot safely meet inside of their existing building because people are going to be too close together and they can't socially distance, okay, well, you've just denied access to your primary location. For whatever reason, you can't get there. You need to be able to continue your operations elsewhere. Classic right. business continuity scenario. And so one of the things that was developed very early on in our response was the ability to send large numbers of people to effectively work at home. And that okay. was one of the scenarios specifically covered within a lot of our business continuity planning, as well as the exercises that we've done over the last couple of years. And so any big hurdles that you uh, encountered that others maybe uh, could benefit from hearing about uh, from the work from home shift at that scale? What I would tell people is don't wait for a crisis 
to implement strong work from home programs. <laughs> um, it right. is extremely difficult to drive an organization that has historically focused very heavily on keeping people centralized and in offices yeah. to a work from home model. Wherever you are able in your organization to effectively have a work at home model, or at least allow people to have the ability to work at home periodically, you make your organization vastly more resilient because instead of being dependent on that single location, you're dependent on hundreds of locations scattered all over your city or region. Let me give you one right. of the best examples of that kind of work from home program and its effectiveness. Um, through Hurricane Harvey. Now, mind you, I'd already left BP at that point. I was at Texas Children's. But the BP campus here in Houston, massive flooding, massive impact from that event. But as a standard for all employees, everybody has a laptop with the ability to VPN back into the organization. And so a large amount of their workforce, they were simply able to tell them, go work at home. Right. And as the campus was rebuilt, they actually rebuilt it with a smaller footprint in terms of office space because a lot of people that had been working in the office found they could very effectively work at home. And so there are a lot of technical aspects to that in terms of bandwidth back into your organization, right. in terms of properly securing laptops, of actually finding enough technology to outfit all, all of your people. Don't wait for a crisis to make that happen. Get comfortable yeah. with it when there's not a crisis. So let me pivot a little bit here because I know we're, you know, this, this interview is taking place right there in the middle of you know, the hurricane season, or at least it's about to start for you. Um, so when you're, when you're dealing with COVID and now you're having to now think about uh, other major events in your horizon scanning, you know, what's, what's the approach you're taking to uh, address both of these potentially simultaneous events uh, that can impact Number you? One. Number one, don't forget the basics. COVID-19 does not care whether or not it is hurricane season. And so all of the things that you would typically do, even though your teams may be completely overtaxed and your resources may be short, and a lot of the people that would normally help you in the planning process, getting ready for hurricane season, they may not be available because they're working on other parts of COVID-19 response. Right. None of that matters. You have got to do your basic preparations that you do every single year, but you can't stop there. So, for example, many hospitals here in the Gulf Coast have what they call a write-out team, which is the people who are dedicated to going and staying at the institution throughout the hurricane to right. take care of critical operations, particularly critical patient care. Well, guess what? If you're going to house hundreds of people inside of your normal <laughs> office space, they right. cannot be close together. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so we have had to go through the effort to work with our infection control people to say, okay, if we're going to sleep these people on the campus, if we're going to accommodate them here, how much space do they need to have to do so effectively? Um, right. Typically, we might have a large open space that's set up as a dormitory where maybe there are 50, 60, 70, 80 people in there. Well, properly social distance, that capacity may be more like 20 or 30. And so all of your sleeping accommodations have to be assessed based on good infection control principles and then go back to your leaders and say, you know what, previously we would have 1,500 people on site during a hurricane. We're going to have to figure out a way to do it with seven or 800 because we just can't accommodate them. Right, right, right. My goodness. Yeah, this is a... 
This is interesting to me because it's uh, bringing back some memories from my career, but uh, definitely this aspect of integrating emergency management, business continuity, and all in the midst of a pandemic and in hurricane season. I don't think many of my listeners would be very envious of, of uh, your shoes <laughs> at this point. But, you know, as we, as we uh, move, move forward, I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, what are some of the tools that you have incorporated? And this is maybe a little bit more on the personal note. I mean, I think people would love to hear about, you know, how you've kind of incorporated tools or, 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 um, you know, um, templates or, you know, technology into your approach. Do you use software? Do you use uh, any, any tool sets that you've really would recommend people check out, even if it's not necessarily a specific name, but just like the type of tool um, uh, that you work one, with? Number one, first and foremost, if you do not have an emergency notification system, if you're still using old style calling trees or anything of that nature, it is essential that you find an emergency notification system that is properly tailored to your organization's needs and size. Right. Um, I have used most of the big players in the market um, at Texas Children's. We currently use Everbridge and have done so very successfully for years. Um, Mir 3 and OnSolve, um, before they were a joined company, I'd used both of those products. Very good products, uh, very well thought out. Regardless of which product you choose, um, there are big players in the market that can meet your needs. That is probably one of the single most effective uh, tools or technologies that we have implemented. Um, the ability to use a tool like that to draw people together into a meeting, to then have those people make the decisions that need to be made for the organization, and then to broadcast out or even target and tailor messages to specific parts of your organization saying, this is what we've decided to do. Here's how you need to be engaged with that. Absolutely essential in the modern world. I, I think that's great advice. Uh, and I, I think that uh, really has showed dividends in my career, and I, I think that would help others. But James, thank you so much for talking with me and the audience today. I think the information about your program and some of the things that you've been able to implement and lead in your organization is just uh, really great work. And so thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Very much appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the Failable Plan podcast. You can find out more about James and the Texas Children's Hospital Program through the links I've included in the show notes. Within those, you'll find some specific links to some great videos about the larger exercises James and the team have accomplished. As always, make sure to visit our website, failoverpodcast.com, or find us on iTunes and other podcast sites. Leave us a review this week so we can keep getting better at this. Thanks again for listening, and remember, why learn how to do something on your own when there's got to be someone else who may have already learned this the hard way? <laughs>